many of them coming out of great companies you'd all know would say, wow, no one's ever told me about systems thinking. They knew they were living in a system. They talked about it but they really didn't understand the system dynamics. Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Hello again and welcome to the show, Bryce. Great to see you again, my friend. Who do we have joining us this week? Well, Marcus, always good to see you. I am really excited because today we have with us Dr. Willie Donaldson, who is a professor of management at the Joseph W. Luter III School of Business at Christopher Newport University. And more importantly to me is the author of this great, short, accessible book, Simple Complexity. Uh, Willie has been a uh, board member and president for over 30 years of a number of different companies, and he served as CEO of, of eight and acting CEO of, of three more. Willie, welcome to the show. Well, gentlemen, it's great to be here, and I'm honored and, and just delighted and can't wait to, to mix it up with you. Uh, likewise. So what is systems thinking for people who don't know, and why does it matter in business? Great, great question. And you know, the, the world is just too complex a place for mankind to take it head on and just deal with it in totality. So what we've done historically is use reductionist thinking to reduce a complex task or, or you know, environment into component parts or elements. So a, a good example I teach in a business school, you know, business is a really complex thing. So we break it down into accounting and finance and marketing and governance and, and take those steps. The problem is we tend to think and, and people tend to, to come away from that reductionist thinking with, oh, if I just optimize all the individual parts, mm -hmm. when they all come together, they're going to work you know, just the way they do. But systems has their very own dynamics and they have a what are called emergent properties that make them really hard. And they, so they have a life and dynamics of their own when those parts come together. And so system thinking was a reaction to reductionist thinking in the world that said, hey, hold it, hold it. You've got to do both the reductionist thinking to understand the parts, and then you have to remember to put it all together and look at how those parts interact and the dynamics that go on there. So um, yeah. it's been a reaction. It's really gaining traction because most of the world's problems are what we in the systems community call wicked problems. They are complex, adaptive, socio-technical challenge. And it's all this, this dense web of interactions and opinions and, and viewpoints that make it really, really hard to get anything done. Indeed. And do you find that, you know, by breaking these things down into their elements, their verticals, well, I've found this, that A, that creates a stovepipe mentality that we see between different departments and divisions. But have you found in your research and going forward now, is that the right way to deal with a complex system by identifying individual elements? Or do we now need to take more of a holistic approach and a deeper understanding of the whole thing rather than the sum of the parts type of mentality? 
A great question, Marcus. And, and the key, and I talk about it in the book, is the, to adopt a mentality of both and because both are really important, right? You have to really get good at finance and your CFO has to worry about finance, right? You don't want him or her worrying about, <laughs> you know, your factories or whatever. Mm -hmm. They can do that, but they're going to want to, they've got to tend to that function, but they cannot forget the fact that they are connected to the whole. And, and you've touched on it. We tend to take those boundaries which don't exist. There are not boundaries between finance and marketing and sales and yeah, operations. Self-created, aren't but, they? But we start acting as if they do. We have a mental model that says, oh, I can optimize just finance and I can ignore the consequences elsewhere. So it's a both and connection. And that's why the book, you'll note the, the title is simple and then underline complexity. They're tied together. You have to do the. You have to break it down into the simple parts to understand it all. But you have to remember the tie to complexity always. You and know, that's what most people don't do. They forget that, or they, their egos get in the way, or they think their title is important, and they they forget the holism. It's so important. You know, I. You mentioned wicked problems, and I I, I would submit that that many of the problems, if not most of the problems that organizations are dealing with, that leaders are dealing with today, are wicked problems because the world has gotten so much complex. It's gotten we we like to talk about VUCA on on the show here: volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, and a lot of folks have started adding an H to the end for hyperconnectivity as well, and. You know, the, the problem with that is, is you, as you, as you said, Willie, you know, our desire to look at things simply and therefore to look at them narrowly is really doesn't serve us well when we're dealing with these types of problems. And the, the example that I love, which I, I will, t will give credit where credit is due to, um, one of the great red teamers of all times, Marine Corps General Paul Van Riper. Uh, when I was uh, had the opportunity to work with him at uh, the uh, Marines uh, School of Advanced Warfare, he said, uh, and it's something that's really stuck with me. He said, he said, uh, complex problems, wicked problems are like playing chess on a chessboard, where every piece is connected to every other piece with a rubber band, so that if you move one pawn, every other piece on the board changes position. That's the issue, though, because if you're not looking at this as systems then you're missing those rubber bands. You're just looking at the pawn and you're not understanding the ways in which the move you just made changed the rest of the board. Yep. And yet most of our training is reductionist. Even at corporate universities, which I've set up and taught, most of them don't have a systems thinking component. When In my organizations, when I brought executives in, I would we would teach them in critical thinking and systems thinking. Um, and many of them coming out of great, companies you'd all know would say, wow, no one's ever told me about systems thinking. They knew they were living in a system. They talked about it, but they really didn't understand the system dynamics. And how often have you seen people not understanding the bigger picture? It's a great phrase we all talk about, don't we? Are we seeing the bigger picture here? And, and the, the sort of levels we're talking about, the executive, the strategic levels of organizations, so often I've seen that they're down in the weeds that they are, we, in the military, we used to call it a long screwdriver. They'd rather be down meddling at the front line, at the coal face, rather than looking back and up and outwards at that bigger picture. How, how do you see that shift happening, Willie, in the way we're moving forward in the world today? Well, I think you, again, you've got to be able to scale and do both. And the key is you've got to catch yourself 
getting too tired and down in the weeds. There's a great technique in, in system thinking called in-scoping and out-scoping. And you've got to know when to use it, when to step back and use a, a broader lens and, and have a better perimeter, and when to drill in. And let's face it, a lot of executives drill in way too soon. Mm -hmm. They micromanage, they go down too far, or they never leave the weeds in the first place. You know, they're comfortable in marketing. So everything's a marketing problem. You know, the, the old adage, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Okay, exactly. well, I can sell my way out of this problem. Well, no, you might need to think of, of more deeply about it. But again, I'm, I'm, ex I'm astounded. I did work with a, a major financial services firm that you two would know. Um, and I asked them this question, 87 people, I think it was, in, of their senior executives in their retreat. Um, and I said, how many of you think this organization is a system? And all of the hands went up, 100%. I said, how many of you think that this is a subsystem of the parent company? All their hands went up. How many of you think that your divisions are subsystems of this system? Down All the way down to people and processes, et cetera. All the hands, 100%. And I said, how many of you have ever heard of, studied, or no, systems thinking, system dynamics, systems, three people out of 87. And they, we just don't do it at CNU here. We do not teach systems thinking. And it's crazy. When I teach it in my classes, the seniors, they say, wow, where's this been hiding? Why, why didn't somebody take the, the bushel basket off of this light bulb before? If it had just so looked this, up left and right, you'd have seen it. But as exactly. you said, everybody's in, their, everybody's in their swim lanes. Everyone's got the blinkers on. Yep. And they don't often, we call it, it's the ostrich effect. People don't often want to look what <laughs> else because they're, they're so busy in their own areas, aren't they, that they can't right. possibly look elsewhere and try and understand that as well. And, yeah, and you, you guys probably have run into a few people, a few uh, particularly senior executives with a, a three-letter problem called ego. <laughs> a few. Ego doesn't want to let us do those things. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, this is systems thinking obviously is not just limited to business. It, yeah. it, it is is something that comes into play in, in everything. Yeah. And and I think that that, one of the first places where people recognized the importance of things, uh, looking at things at a systems level, was in ecology. And a lot of the, the environmental mess that we're dealing with right now, mm -hmm. globally, is a result of a lack of systems thinking that, that, that characterized human behavior for hundreds of years, which is we didn't, we didn't understand that we, you know, that if you dump pollutants in a river, you're going to poison the, the water supply downstream. We didn't understand that if you, you make a lot of smoke and burn a lot of, a lot of carbon, you're going to change the, 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 the atmospheric conditions and have all sorts of follow on effects of that. We didn't understand that if you, you know, make everything out of plastic, that it has to go somewhere. Yep. And it's kind of shocking, yeah. you know, to, I think particularly <laughs> young people today who've grown up in a world that, that, that's hyper aware of these things. I think it's kind of shocking for them to think about the fact that, you know, not too long ago, not, not, you know, a thousand years ago, a hundred years ago, or even, you know, more than 50 years ago, most people didn't consider this type of thing at all. No, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you, you mentioned the, the, <clears throat> the roots of it. And, and one of the early, early um, proponents of it was von Burton Lanfey, right? And that he came out of biology. Just like, no, you can't just take the cells apart and, and expect that, a lung is going to function when you put it all together. It does different things. It has different, and it also connects to other systems. Right. And then, you know, you look at the, um, 
you know, the, the limits of growth stuff that Forrester and, and Meadows um, did and, and just waking the world up. And that's why the um, World Economic Forum it has identified as one of the top skills we've got to get people using because we're not going to solve these problems with, with no. re reductionist lame thinking. Yeah, you've heard the term lame and, and uh, as yeah. opposed to VUCA, right? We're, we're, you're going to have to think about these problems. I don't know. I heard lame but I can't remember what it stands for. So so educate Lin me and the rest of our listeners. Yeah, linear anthropocentric. So, you know, A follows B follows C, which systems don't do. Anthropocentric, we look at the world through our lens. Mm -hmm. And yep. there's a fascinating story about that. I don't know if you ever read about the um, earthquake off of Banda Aceh and the tidal wave that hit Banda Aceh. There's a, mm -hmm. And I'll try to find it and send it to you. But there was a, a memoir essentially published by a guy who was standing on the beach at, on Bondache with his cocktail, admiring this beautiful weather yes. that was going on. And he said, I was struck by the fact that all of the animals were heading for the forest and going mm -hmm. inland. Right. I've seen he videos said, I, of I this. Yeah, I couldn't there's, understand. There's people are just standing on the beach going, ooh, cool, taking <laughs> pictures with their cell phones yeah. and yeah. stuff. And you know, all the animals sensing. are going, yeah. yeah, and we yeah. think we're the sentient species here. <laughs> <laughs> so anthropocentrism, you know, writ large. Um, and then M is is mechanistic, mm. right? Um, and O is organized. And none of those things are true, right? Wow. Yeah. We have to add this to our to our to yeah. our curriculum, Marcus. The antonym of VUCA. Lamo thinking. Yeah. And it's such a perfect it's such a perfect <laughs> yeah. name for it. It you is know, isn't you it? derived from lame. Yeah. Right? right. But it's so true. I mean you know, most people want to look at all problems as linear. Yep. You know, we, we, we view everything through an anthropocentric lens, mechanistic thinking. You know, if, if I pull this lever, I, I solve this problem and and everything is is organized. You know, that's an interesting one, because I do think that every everything is organized at a certain level, but it's organized at a lot more complex and chaotic level than most people like realize that's chaos. It. Yeah. Is yeah, it yeah. organized at the systemic level? Right. That's yeah. the key. And right. that's one of the distinctions I make. It's very easy to be systematic. Right. The question is, are you systemic? Are you really looking at the whole? Oh, I love that. That People is a don't great like quote. It, People they don't like, do it. They're, they're, like it. They're afraid of it. They're uncomfortable. We talk about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable and with ambiguity. Yep. yep. And if you're, if you're not organize in the way you want to be or think you should be, which you often really are in a complex adaptive mm -hmm. system, then that's where people, I think, start to lose it. They, you see their behaviors change. They become very uncomfortable. You start to see reactive behavior rather than what we talk about being responsive because they're not yeah. forward thinking. They're not planning properly. They haven't delegated. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> the reality of where they are catches them unaware, which everybody else can see it coming. But if you have that myopic view, and your head's been in the sand, then it becomes mm -hmm. a shock to me. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's interesting, you know, Marcus, you know, as you say, you know, one of the things we talk about, pe people are lazy, our brains are lazy, and this is hard. And um, one of the things that really struck me, um, you know, my first book, as, as, as you both know, was about Ford Motor Company. And when I was when I was trying to understand the recent history of Ford Motor Company, and by recent history, I mean, you know, from from the 1990s on, one of the, the things that that I struggled with was, you know, there was a period in the late 90s 
when Ford had more money than it could possibly know what to do with because of the SUV craze. The SUV craze took off in the United States. The margins on SUVs were insane. I mean, we're just, I mean, we're, we're the stuff of Vegas, you know, you know, slot machine level mark margins and people were buying them hand over fist. And they were buying them in, in such an unthinking way. I, there's an image that I'll never get out of my mind of I, a neighbor in my subdivision at the time coming home with a huge, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, it was a Cadillac Escalade or a, or, a, or a Ford Lincoln Navigator or something and pulling from the dealer into her into her garage and just peeling the roof off of it on the way home because she didn't even bother to see <laughs> if it would fit in her garage. And, and, and that's, you know, that just really demonstrates the craze. And Ford ended up with, with just, just so much cash on hand. And I went back and I was looking at, you know, Wall Street Journal stories at the time, Detroit news stories at the time. And a lot of analysts were saying, well, you know, now Ford is finally going to be able to solve all of its systemic problems. You know, this company has been struggling for decades and now they have all this cash. And they had, you know, Jack Nasser was the new CEO and, and a darling of Wall Street. And everyone was very impressed with Jack Nasser. And he came in and, and promised big things. And then he took all that money and he did everything but fix Ford Motor Company. He bought technology companies. He bought recycling companies. He created an online marketplace for the auto industry. He did all of these things, but fix Ford Motor Company. And, and, and I was like, why? And I was I, I was sitting having coffee once with an old former Ford executive, and I and I who had been close to Nasser at the time. And this guy was an old car industry guy, so this is the metaphor he went. He said, "Bryce, he said what happened with Jack was he had the best intentions, but when he got to the CEO's job and he got control of the company, he opened the hood, he looked at the engine, he said, "Wow, what a mess.'" And he slammed the hood shut and went and started buying these other companies. And I think that gets right there to this thing of, of why leaders don't tackle complexity, right? Because it's hard. <laughs> yeah. It's easier yeah, to go list. out and start an online marketplace from scratch than it is to fix the systemic problems of a hundred-year-old company that's got all these different issues. Absolutely. And particularly for publicly traded, which I've taken a company public and run a publicly traded company, you go to bed one night and wake up the next day and a quarter's gone by and you got to deliver results in that period of time. It's just the relentless pressure to deliver. So you fall back to the DuPont identity and you drive efficiency. And that doesn't always drive effectiveness, right? In short term nature. And these changes, changing these kinds of institutions takes forever, right? And people don't want to do that. It's interesting you mentioned that that drive for efficiency. That's always what we see, isn't it? When you start looking at that next quarter target, you know, what do we need to do? We need to cut costs, headcount reduction, drive for efficiency, increase productivity. And it very, very rarely works because you're not yep. going back to that root cause of developing and engaging your people. And I, I know in the book I talked about, you talk about training people versus developing them. Can you expand yep. on that? Because that's something we're very passionate about and deeply passionate about uh, enabling our people to do such things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and um, it, it just, the difference, it, it's a mindset difference that, that you have to think about it. Training in so many cases in corporate America is I'm going to deliver my payload to the employees and walk <laughs> away. And it's yeah. check the box. Yes. We put 300 people through customer service training, but did it have any impact? Did you get through to anybody did did they you know changing somebody's mental models and their language it, 
they're the only person that can do that. And that's what you've got to try to gauge. And, and we're just unintentional about it. You know, I can't tell you, and you've posted this, how many companies say employees are our number one resource. And I say, <laughs> yeah, no. Lies we tell ourselves. <laughs> yeah, all right. Prove that to me. Show me your yeah. corporate universe. Show me your training facility. Show me how you track that. Show me how you've developed internal candidates. It's, well, Willie, you know, when I was at uh, when I was at the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, um, researching my my last book, Red Teaming, um, I had lunch every every couple of weeks with the Commanding General Bob Brown, and Bob had the interesting distinction of having been named by uh, the president to one of the CEO councils, White House CEO councils. And as he put it, he says, I'm, I, I, I'm the token guy in green in the room. <laughs> um, and he said, you know, we meet every quarter and, 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 you know, discuss weighty issues and we play golf and eat dinner together, you know, and stuff. And he's, I've gotten to know several of these folks, several of these guys, they're all guys. <laughs> um, and he said, I got to tell you, cause he knew that I was, planning on creating a company after I wrote my book to, to train leaders in, in, in the concepts I was studying there. He says, I don't know how you're going to be able to do that. He said, because he says, the thing that has struck me so much, Marcus and I have talked about this on the show before, is that he, how little training the, even the most senior mm-hmm. executives at, at these big companies get. He said, as, a, as at the time, he was a three-star general. He soon became a four-star general and then since re- just recently retired. He said, as a, as a three-star general, I get over a month of personal development every year, leadership development, management development, you know, military strategy skills, all of these things. He says that, you know, the, the, the Uncle Sam invests a lot of money and time in making me a better leader. And he said, I, 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 at dinner one night with, with the other members of the CEO council, I said, how many of you have had one week of training in the past year? None of them raised their hand. He said, how many of you have had three days? He said, the best at, at our table, we had one guy who was part of a, a, a two day, two half day retreat. He said, most of these people, if they're lucky, they get sent to an executive MBA program at some point in their career as part of being fast tracked to the top, but that's the last of it. And that's, you know, and he's right. And that's real. And Marcus and I did a whole show about how we've the, seen the, how this, of that. I mean, the military the invests yeah. tremendously in training yeah. leaders and, and the civilian world doesn't. And, and, and uh, the, the, my corporate universities, the very first module to your point, it was not about, hey, this is how we do product development or finance. It was critical thinking and included to Bono's six thinking hats, where yeah. I think red team yeah. thinking came from. Right. And so if, um, if not, people, some people or, think it did, but he right. actually he got his red hat from red, red hat, teammate. Okay. From yeah. Red right. thinking. yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. But the point is, if you can't get people to understand their own mind and the filters and the biases that they've got, you can't go anywhere with that. And then the next one was systems thinking for them to know they were dependent on the system and they were a follower in most cases and right. break down egos and break down the silos. And then it's, oh, yeah, let us tell you how we do things around here. Because that's also critically important is to have common mental models and common language. I, I write about it in the book, Rich, you probably remember, you know, I, I got taken in, our board member recommended me to, to meet with a government contractor. I've done a lot of work with our DOD. Um, seven seated CEO or C-suite executives. And the, the board member thought they were struggling with project management. And I said, okay, so the board member thinks you might be struggling with project management. 
As soon as I got that <clears> statement out, one person said, well, it's not project management, it's program management. And another person said, they're the same thing. Somebody else over here said, no, they're not. I was like, what about portfolio? Throw it all right. in. <laughs> so I, I said, time out. Take a piece yeah. of paper. I want you seven to write down individually words, draw a picture, what you mm -hmm. think project management is in this organization. Seven, seven. different mental models with different Absolutely. language. And Absolutely. any one of them would, of would work. Right, exactly. And so somebody in San Diego is getting fired for doing yeah. accounting in their project management. And somebody in, in Norfolk is getting uh, and this is the problem with it. Yeah. <laughs> we talk about the three C's and this is something that we've evolved seeing this in organizations. And the three C's are clarity, capability, then culture. And that <clears> first <throat> thing you're talking to there is clarity. You know, if you don't understand and, and Bryce is an author, you're an author, I'm an English wordsmith, you know, words mean things. And in the military Absolutely. we have, you know, when we say defend, there's an absolute crystal definition of what that means. And everybody knows when I say defend, everybody, wherever you are, knows exactly what that means. But you go into the commercial world, and as you just said, seven people mean seven things, and then that gets cascaded, especially from right. the top. And we wonder yeah. why there's blistering confusion. And we talk about most businesses die from self-inflicted wounds. And, and it's yeah, not absolutely. hard to see why when you go in and see these behaviors that have normally just grown over time and become the default you know, right. way of and, thinking. And the, and the tragedy is you look at the Gallup poll results where upwards of 80% employees are disengaged or I actively know. disengaged to work. Yeah. Think about the opportunity to unleash that power. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing. You know, that's, I mean, that's, that's one of our core principles is, you know, and, and this goes back to something I saw when I was a business journalist, and I, I've, I've believed for a long time, is that every organization has the solutions, has the answers it needs inside the organization. They don't need to hire consultants. Yeah. They don't need to, to hire McKinsey to tell them what to do. They just need to listen to their people, but yeah. they don't have the mechanisms. Yeah. They don't have the psychological safety. They don't have the desire mm -hmm. to listen to their people. Well, you, we were talking about development a little while ago. This is a, a sort of a straw survey I've been doing informally over the years for 30, 40 years, and I'll ask people, how many of you have had intensive training on writing and reading and even public speaking? And some of them, you know, like, then I ask the, the, the real question, how many of you have ever had a class on or studied listening? Hmm. Almost zero, right? Our Ooh. first class, when I went to the, 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 the red teaming leader course at uh, Command General Staff College, our first class, first week, was about active listening yeah. yep. because not, you know, the, the point that our instructor made was that none of the other tools are going to do you any good as a leader, yep. you know, cause the, the other tools we're going to learn are all about surfacing the good ideas in your team, hearing disconfirming evidence, hearing contrarian views, getting different viewpoints. It doesn't matter how many of those you service if you're not listening to them. Right. And yep. that is so key. Yep. And yep. it is really something that as you, as you say, Willie is not, not taught, not practiced, and not even something I think a lot of leaders are aware of. No, they're not. And you have to, it's one of those things where, again, you have to catch yourself because most of us listen with our response track running in the background, Correct. ready to deliver our payload. And that's not listening. And, and I love um, uh, Stephen Covey's definition of, you know, empathic listening, listening with your eyes and your heart <clears throat> for meaning because, yeah. you know, body language and tone of voice gives you the full picture most of the time before you even need to know it. Right. Right. These are learned skills, aren't they? Exactly. It's like emotional intelligence, critical thinking, 
active listening. You don't read a book or watch a video and learn these. You physically have to learn it. Your brain yep. has to be expanded and you have to feel it. As you said, you've got to feel these things in your heart, in your gut, over yep. and over till it becomes intuitive because yep. people don't do that. And, and the irony of all this is we think we do. Yep. It's the danger of the brain playing that trick on us, isn't it? That we yep. think we're empathetic. We yep. think we're listening. Right. Well, I'll take this one level further. I think that that not only are we often not practicing active listening, we're, we're practicing active ignorance. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because today, you know, people are, are in a meeting and they're on, I can't pull my cord far enough. They're right. on their tablet. They're on their yep. laptop. They're on their phone. Yep. You know, that, you know, this is, you know, I know, I know your, your dad uh, knew Alan Mulally, <laughs> yep. uh, my mentor. And, uh, you know, one of Alan's first rules, literally the first meeting he held at Ford Motor Company, put it on the on, on a sign up saying no blackberries. I mean, this was the mm-hmm. the the you know two thousand and, and, and six, and and you know I talked with several of the executives in the room, you know, who were in that first meeting. They said they were really upset by this because they were like, "What the hell? Is, you know, who the hell is this guy? We're not we're not you don't talk to us like we're twelve year olds in school." Come in here, you know, we make millions of dollars a year. You know, we're, we're high power executives. Are you telling us we can't look at our Blackberries? Well, there was a reason for that. Mm-hmm. He wanted them to listen to each other. Mm-hmm. And he, and, it, and, and, you know, and they didn't. That's the irony. I mean, the proof was, is they didn't. So the next meeting he held, there was a basket at the door. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, you know, as this guy told me himself, he said, the first meeting, I was like, who the hell is this guy? He's treating us like 12 year olds. The second meeting, I realized, you know what? We're acting like 12 year olds. <laughs> so, and very well cascade. Exactly. <clears throat> Overly yeah. But how, how does that cascade down through society? Isn't it? You go out to a restaurant now, and we did this. It was my birthday the other day. We went out for dinner, and we were all sat there having a conversation, chatting with each other. And you look across at another table, and there's a family of six, adults included, all on their phones. Nobody's having a conversation, nobody's talking. The waiters get ignored as they come over and serve their food. And it's like, excuse me for interrupting your phone search while I pass you your food. And that has a massive impact. But you can see that tidal wave now of behaviors and goes back yep. to exactly what you Brian said, that people are becoming ignorant, but they're training themselves to be ignorant because then they're so oblivious to what's yep. going on. So if you're in a system, you aren't going to see any of these parts mm-hmm. that are moving around you dynamically. Yep. And then the feedback loops with social media just reinforce what you already know, and, and then it's just yeah. It's oh just, yeah, don't get us started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's let's take a let's take a break here. We we've, we've come uh, covered a lot of bases here. When we come back, I want to come back to something we talked about earlier, though, which is short term thinking. So, folks, we're gonna, we'll take a short break. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively, to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes, or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. Welcome back. So, Earlier, Willie, you were talking about your experience being the CEO of a publicly traded company and how that need, you know, how you 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 get one quarter and then you know you wake up. It feels like you wake up the next day and you're you got a week to get the next quarter's results on, and how that drives short-term decision making and short-term thinking. 
I, I have something that I believe and I'd really like to get your thoughts on. I think that short-term thinking is the biggest enemy of systems thinking because I think it's impossible to think about things as connected systems if mm-hmm. you're thinking about things in a short-term way. What do you think of, of that? Couldn't agree more. Now, short-term thinking has its appropriate places when if you've got an emergency or a crisis, right. yeah, you've got to respond. But in general, you've got to think beyond a quarter or beyond the time. I mean, innovation, you know, there's all this talk about and training in organizations. Oh, you need to come train our people to be more innovative. Most organizations have driven innovation out because innovation costs you short term, pays off long term. We right. want to save the cost and we don't want to we don't want to think long term. And you just most systems have these long feedback loops that just take time. I write about it in one where a CFO, you know, an owner comes in and um, tells the CFO to tighten up on on their um, uh, receivables, you know, get cash collections going. So the CFO dutifully and, and using bounded rationality says, oh, I'm just going to think about this from my world, tightens up credit policies, sends people to collections faster, et cetera. But time's got to go on and problem solved. Cash is better, except they go and visit their customer who's saying, wow, they're now a total pain in the neck to do business with. Let's go find right. another supplier. Another, you know, year later, eighteen months later, comes around. The CEO's in the in the salesperson's face, saying, "You better light a fund, fire under sales." <laughs> right? Well, it, it was a, a function of your shutting off credit eighteen months ago, twenty four months ago. Yeah, we just well, you know, this is way. this was this was long a systemic problem in the American automobile industry yep. is how how the big three dealt with their suppliers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the easiest thing, you know, when you're under the, 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 the cost of, of meeting your, your quarterly numbers is we've got to get costs down. You know, leadership team says, you know, to purchasing, well, you know, go and go and ring another couple, two or three cents out every part from, from the suppliers. Mm-hmm. And they did, you know, you know, GM was the worst of this. GM would, would, would literally bring in all the suppliers of a component, say, you know, you know, leaf springs for trucks. And they'd sit them in rooms, in conference rooms, in the same hall. They'd all see that they made sure they all see that their competitors were going into a room down the hall. And they'd just walk up and down the hall and say, right, you know, XYZ Corporation says that they can deliver these for, you know, $2.12 a unit, you know, beat that or you're, you lose your contract. Okay. Well, you know, give us a, you know, give us an, you know, they'll spend 30 minutes figuring out how they can do it. All right. We can do $2 and 10 cents. Great. Then they go to ABC corporation, AB XYZ corporation just said they can do it. And they just go through this cycle of ringing, you know, and at the end of the day, they'd have gotten the price down 18 cents or 28 cents or something on each of these components, which adds up certainly. But you know what they didn't think about at all in this is that there's a reason why our cars are pieces of crap. And have have horrible quality, and why we're getting our lunch eaten by the Japanese and the Germans, yeah. and, and then later the Koreans, is because, you know, Toyota never did that. Right. As, that's not even that's not even you know, that would be anathema to Toyota. Toyota builds long term relationships with suppliers. They bring them into the design process. They 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 make them invested in it, and they they work with them in the long term. They get great quality as a result. What a surprise! That goes back to full circle, though, doesn't it? Yeah, but also those people. And they are people, let's not forget that, which they often do. They're part of your system. And if you see them as the outer circle group and they're not part of the inner circle, then you're going to get those behaviors. You're going to think you can do that to them and that's okay. And then when you get the blowback from it, sometime downrange, people are surprised. But when you look at the 
root cause analysis of why that happened. And we see this so often in the, and it goes back to your premise of, you know, the systems thinking concept is, and we do this with a tool called influencer engineering. Who are your stakeholders? Who are your influencers? And invariably it goes way broader and beyond what people initially think because people aren't considering the holistic view of what is now in this complex world, all these different layers and levels. And take it right back to our discussion about the Gallup results. And I had a front row seat to that because one of the companies I ran was Hughes JVC. It was owned by Hughes, it was a joint venture, and they were owned by GM at the time. So I got a front row seat to a lot of this. And I had one guy on my staff who had worked at General Motors, and this is how he was told to pick the, this is back in the day when Windows had cranks. He said he would pick the crank up and he would spin it. And if it spun very freely, that went in the Cadillac box. If it was a little clunky, that went in the, a little clunky that went in the Chevrolet. If it was really stuck, it went in the Chevrolet. Don't solve the problem. And he said, I just checked out. He said, it's clear these people don't care about quality, don't care about their customers. And and it, unfortunately, there's, there's just too much of that going on. Great. That's the quiet quitting, doesn't it? We've talked about how many people out there are checking out. And then again, the executive blame them rather than looking at why why are people, be yeah. I call it sheep-like passivity. Why are people just happy with mediocre? Why yeah. are they heads down, grinding on a day-to-day basis without caring? And it's because, of, as you said, people are not engaged because they're seeing these behaviors on a more broader you know, scheme of what's going on from the company culture. And well, let's stick easier, with it. And I'll, go ahead. I was going to say it's far easier to blame somebody or a department or someone else than blame the system. And, and you remember W.O. Rich Deming found that upwards of 94% of all the errors were systemic, right? faults, defects, misunderstandings, misalignments, and may not be fatal, they were, you have good people and you force them to do the wrong things, like my friend you know, turning his crank. Well, let's, you know, let's look at the other, the positive side of that. I'm going to stick with an auto example. You know, people wonder in people, a lot of people in the auto industry wonder why Lexus is so good because they're, they're Toyotas. I mean, they're built on the same platforms as Toyotas, you know, it's, you know, but they're, they're really incredibly well put together. The answer is simple. And don't quote me on the exact figure. Uh, cause I don't remember what it is, but the Lexus line moves at 80%, I believe, of the speed of the Toyota line. It's that simple. And if you're a top performing worker at Toyota, you get promoted to the Lexus line. So they put their best workers on an assembly line, often in the same factory as the regular Toyota line. And they're given the time, that extra time to check their work to make sure that everything's ratcheted down right, that the stitching's perfect, that the, everything's aligned perfectly. And guess what? What a surprise. They they produce incredibly high quality vehicles with great fit and finish consistently. What do we say? Slow down to speed up. Yeah. You know, that's going to save you time down range because those cars aren't going to come back. You're not going to get customer complaints. Your customer service is going to be tiny because you don't need it. Your dealers are going to be selling lots and they're going to be happy because the quality in that time you took, and this is so often goes back to project management and agile delivery. People rush these things. No, no, no C-suite wants to take three days to do planning and deliberation and thinking. Let's just do this. We know what we need to do. We, we've done this forever. The ego kicks in. Let's just go. And then three months, six months down range, the wheels come off. You haven't slowed down. You've stopped. You've crashed. And then how much does that cost in time and goodwill? People see that and go, we told you this in the planning session that you rushed us through yeah. six months ago. And here we are. 
how demoralizing does that feel when you're that individual who's then suffering to pick it up? Well, and again, conversely, imagine that you're the, you're you're this this Toyota line worker who's done a great job for 20 years, and, and your boss comes to you and says, you know, I want you to move over to the Lexus line. I want you to take your time and slow down and really get this right. Yeah. Think about how you're going to feel so much differently just as a factory worker, even yeah. about like, wow, look at that! I'm going to get to really Stifle. do this, you know, and I'm gonna I'm gonna matter. My work is going to matter. That's the message there. Yep. I had a CEO come through again, a company you'd know came through one of my public sessions and he, we sort of asked him, why are you here? He said, because I forgot too much. He said, we went through this reorganization and I went on a tour to talk to people after the reorganization. And he said, the number one comment from people on the front line was what took you so long? Wow. We've been telling you this for years. He said, I just, I just lost sight of it. And he said, I came back to sort of, retool myself and and get better at what I do. Well, good on him though. You know, I yeah. mean, to, this is another thing that I'd say is a key to, to, to systems thinking it is going and seeing, you can't understand the system that you're working if you've never seen it in action. And, you know, I, we had one of our recent guests was, was uh, um, the CEO of CSX railroad, Joe Henricks, who is somebody who is a great leader. I, I got to know him when he was at Ford and, you know, Joe took over CSX, you know, recently, and he's regularly going and trying trying to do surprise visits to different CSX facilities all over the United States. And he said it was really hard at first because his security team was tipping people off saying, oh, you guys got to get ready, you know, the, the bot. So he had to like create like a trusted inner circle so he could, could surprise people because, but it's not a gotcha. He wants to get there and mm-hmm. see how the system really works. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he told me, he says, I spent a lot of time walking around with it, you know, neon jack, neon vest over my, over my, my suit, you know, these days, because I, I, I need to understand how all of our pieces interconnect, how our people work together, how our systems work together. That's the only way you're going to understand. Cause you're never going to get told that your yeah. system yeah. will never tell you that the filtration system, yep. by the time it gets up to you, wherever you are in your sky God position. It's going to have those rose tinted views in it all the way up, isn't it? And bad news uh, never goes up. Yeah, unless you do two things: one, train the organization and your senior managers to be open to that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. in the book, I talk about the upside down pyramid. Put the CEO and the Correct. and the C suite at the bottom and say, no, the Servant most leadership. important people exactly. exactly. And unless you have the, that mental model and, and bring people into that, and I will tell you, when I was interviewing. And I would share that with some executives. They said, I don't want to work here. Forget it. Right? Well, so, don't want you. So this leads us nicely into culture, which I'd love to pick your brains on, Willie. Is it, We all know that, or people think that culture comes from people, but ultimately it's an emergent property of the system yep. within which those people inhabit. So yep. how have you seen both positive and negative aspects of culture form and the impact it has? Well, it, it, it absolutely emerges from the system, and I think it is, in my opinion, a direct result of management actions. Right? This stuff's easy to talk about. It. I, I think I write about it in the book, the Italian um, expression that the paper will not refuse the ink. You can write this stuff any way you want. It'll, it'll. I went on to Enron's website the day they filed for bankruptcy and tr- tr- pulled down their values. What do you, what do you think <laughs> yeah. they were? Transparency, honesty, all nonsense. So you can write yeah. this stuff down, but if you don't yeah. live those values, and that's where most managers and leaders go wrong. 
right? Yeah. I, I, I pulled up to a, somebody um, that I was doing work with. He heard about me and can you come and help me? And I, there's somebody detailing his Mercedes or no, it was a Bentley in front of him, right at the front door of his company as I walk in. And then his, what's first, the message right there? His first comment was, yeah, my people, you know, I just, I don't think they're doing anything. I, you know, I, I, I can't trust them. And it's like, well, the message you're sending is they're not important. Right. And so it, we, we just, and, and our statements of values become cynicism engines if we don't live them. And that's the hard part, you know, because you're going to make mistakes. And this is the other thing CEOs don't do. They won't apologize. Right? If you make a mistake, you got to go out and publicly apologize and say, I'm, I'm going to do better. I, I've let you down. Right. <laughs> and, you know, there, there, there's, you know, it's interesting. That's one of the things that you see in in both Japanese and Korean companies that you never see in the United States yep. is the CEO of the company standing in front of the news cameras, you know, apologizing yep. personally yep. for the failing of the company, yep. you know, and, and I know that's, that there's cultural elements of that, but we can learn a lot from that, that level of accountability, Absolutely. you know, you know, it, you know, it's, it's, you know, the, 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 the CEO of, 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 Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, had to go on, you know, Japanese, every Japanese network after Fukushima and apologize to everyone in Japan yeah. for, for failing them, yep. you know? This is Can you difference. imagine, I mean, did, did the CEO, I don't know who owned Three Mile Island, but I don't recall the CEO of that company ever going on television and apologizing to all the people of, of, of the eastern seaboard of the United yeah. States for, And how about you know, the C-suite of Wells Fargo after pounding thousands of accounts into... And it's still doing it. It's after getting caught. It's now here. Here we are a a year or two later, and they've just been caught again for doing it. I mean, it's unreal. Those are just rogue tellers and you know people down there. Yeah, right. That's crazy. And I'll tell you, you guys will love this story. I had to give a talk um, to the Federal Trade Commission, one of my companies, and I was part of a team looking at um, CEO compensation and tax effects of it. And we and Intel put the group together. And they had a reception the night before. We're all in the, the Willard Hotel in D.C. And I got there, went down to the, to the reception, and there's nothing, nobody was there. And I, I thought it was at, five, let's just say, 5.30. I got there early, and it was later than that. Anyway, there's a, a bar sitting down in the corner, and this guy who looked like a retired postal worker. And so I was like, oh, well, it's 10 minutes. I went up, and you know, he said, hey, good to see you. Can I get you something here? And who are you? I'm Willie Donaldson. Oh, yeah, well, that's very interesting. Turns out it was Gordon Moore. Oh, wow. And he just said, welcome. That's great. I'm glad you could make it. And and that spoke volumes to me about who he was and his company. Right? Right. It just... To be that accessible. Exactly. One of the great legends of Silicon Valley, not just of Intel, of of the technology industry as a whole. whole. Yeah, you have to, you know, you have to make yourself accessible as a leader. You know, if you want, I mean, you know, to me... And it's a and it's a two way it's a two way mirror, if you will, mm-hmm. um, because you have to make yourself accessible so that you can hear unfiltered information at from your teams. But you also and we we've kind of talked about this in different ways. I think throughout our conversation today, you have to model the behavior that you want your teams to demonstrate. You know, and and if people don't, you know, like you said, give the example. If they see, if they see the 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 CEO is a guy who's got his Bentley parked, double parked out front, you know, with someone someone washing it, 
you know, that sends a powerful message versus, you know, you know, again, I'll use the example uh, I talk about in my, my, my book, American Icon, about Alan is nobody could get to work before Alan. <laughs> you know, it, it, you know, he was always the first person in the executive parking lot and all the executives one by one lost the battle to getting getting to work before Alan. And the last one, you know, finally it was between him and the CFO, you know, and, and or, or the, I think it was the head of Ford Credit, you know who was famous for, for coming in at like, you know, five in the morning. And he finally went in his office. He's like, you know, I can't do it. You win fine. You're in first, but you know, that's modeling the behavior there. You know, I mean, think of the contrast between that and the guy who double parks his, his Bentley in, in front of the front well, door, you know, this goes back to culture, doesn't it? And the understanding of it. And I remember working with one individual and he was like, you know, I'd like you to change my culture. I'd like you to shift it. I was like, where is it? Is that what you mean? I said, is it, is it somewhere with wheels and handles that I can do that? I said, you can't do that. I said, I can't change your culture. You can't change the culture. You can't change mindset and perspectives. I said, what needs to change are behaviors. And he got all excited. Great, great. So, so what behaviors do they need to change? They, said, they <laughs> what behaviors do they said, need to change? Right. It goes back to yeah. what, what you said, Willie, about <laughs> getting fired. And I said, no, you and your peers and your executives need to change the behaviors first. And as Bryce said about Alan, you have to lead by setting the example. It's parenting 101, military leadership 101. And the sort of flabbergasted look on this individual's face, what? what? But I've been this way forever. <laughs> we know that's <laughs> probably the why problem, the culture is this way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's staggering, yeah. isn't it? That these individuals of a certain age and nature are still in this mindset of, well, what got me here? That's how it's going to be. And it goes back to, you said earlier, the ego that drives all this. And if you don't understand that inner learning of your own personal behaviors and what then the system around you is doing and behaving because of that, it's, it's fascinating to see this still going on when it's clear as day for many people. Uh, so much to, so much to unpack here. Before we, before we go, Willie, I love your book. I encourage people to check it out. What's what's just one piece of advice you'd give to leaders on how they can understand the systems that they are leading better? Wow, that's a hard one. Um, but I but I think I, I write about it, and I wish I'd put actually a graphic in it. it. If you look at the canonical model of a system, you've got input, time, people, and money through a black box called the system into outputs, products, and services. And that's what I used to CEOs. I say, look at that picture, study that picture. You're the system architect. So anything that goes wrong, you need to look in the mirror first and then go exploring and look at the system. You have to look at it as a system that, that does that throughput. And we, we tend not to look at it that way. Uh, and we tend not to take responsibility for it. I use the quote, you know, that, that the system is perfectly designed to get the results it's getting today. Wow, that is a great piece of learning. And if you look at that graphic, you you can't, it can be nothing but that conclusion. The system is perfectly designed to get the results that it's getting today. On that bombshell, thank you so much, Willie. It's been a pleasure talking with you. It it really has. has. I wish we had a couple more hours. Well, we'll have to have you back on the show. I'd love to. Come back on. All right. Let me know if I can help you guys in any way. I've I've been talking your stuff up and we'll continue to do it. But if I can help, let me know. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. 
Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode there. You'll also find a link to our free assessment. Click on it right now to find out if you are a Red Team thinker with a Red Team culture.